So, chapter four, about halfway through, I said we actually ended on like, I don't know if it was a cliffhanger, but it was right before probably the like one of the highlights of Ruth, uh, of Esther. Um, this next passage is pretty amazing. But to recap a little bit, again, won't go all the way back to the start, but back to the start of chapter four. Well, end of chapter three, Haman has uh, got the king to sign off on this plan that he has to have all the Jews in the entire Persian empire murdered in 11 months time. Yeah? And this edict has been decreed, it's been written down, it's been passed as law, and it's been distributed throughout the empire. So everybody now knows what's happening in 11 months time. And everybody's super upset about it, but the king and Morde- uh, the king and uh, and Haman are sitting in the palace drinking. They got no idea. And so then we started chapter four. When Mordecai became aware of all that had been done, he tore his garments and put on sackcloth and ashes. He went out into the city, crying out in a loud and bitter voice. But he went no farther than the king's gate, for no one was permitted to enter the king's gate clothed in sackcloth. And throughout every Each and every province where the king's edict and law were announced, there was considerable mourning among the Jews, along with fasting, weeping, and sorrow, and sackcloth and ashes were characteristic of many. Yeah, remember? Mordecai finds out. He was obviously very upset, obviously because of what's happening, but also probably partly because of his role in it. And so they go out mourning. Sackcloth and ashes, we talked about that. Fasting. What's the point of fasting? Do you remember? Okay. What do they fast for? In the Bible. Yeah. Fasting and prayer normally goes together. Fasting is a way of demonstrating how desperately you see, you're, you're seeking God. To who? Who are you fasting for? God, right? But we said it's a little bit strange here because there's no prayer. It's just that they're fasting. But as we'll see later, I think it's very clear that, that this was prayer and fasting. But for whatever reason, in the book of Esther, the prayer is left out. Okay, anyway. Uh, So then Esther's female attendants and her eunuchs come and they tell her about Mordecai, that he's out at the gate in sackcloth and ashes mourning, crying out, all upset. And when the queen hears this, she's overcome with anguish. And although she sent garments to Mordecai to put on so that he could remove his sackcloth, he would not accept them. Remember, you weren't allowed to come into the palace. You weren't allowed to be seen by the king if you were sad. And so as long as he was in mourning in sackcloth and ashes, he wasn't allowed in the palace. And I think probably Esther's sending him clothes so that he can get dressed and come in. But he's like, no. Well, so Esther, uh, yeah, he would not accept them. So Esther called for Hatak, one of the king's eunuchs who had been placed at her service and instructed him to find out the cause and reason for Mordecai's behavior. So Hatak went to Mordecai at the plaza of the city in front of the king's gate. And Mordecai related to him everything that had happened to him, even the specific amount of money that Haman had offered to pay the king to the king's treasuries for the Jews to be destroyed. He also gave him a written copy of the law that had been disseminated in Susa for their destruction so that he could show it to Esther and talk to her about it. He also gave her instructions that she should go to the king to implore him and petition him on behalf of her people. So Hatak returned and related Mordecai's instructions to Esther. So Esther sends her servant out to Mordecai and says, like, what's going on? And Mordecai then explains, this is what's happened. Yeah. And he tells Hatak to tell Esther, you need to go and see the king. You need to go and plead for our lives. Yeah. What did Esther say? Yeah, she says you're crazy. Everybody knows what will happen if I do that. 
She says to the Tark, with the, she, so she sends her Tark back to Mordecai and says, All the servants of the king and the people of the king's provinces know that there is only one law applicable to any man or woman who comes uninvited to the king in the inner court. That person will be put to death. Unless the king extends to him the gold scepter permitting him to be spared. And I haven't been invited to come to the king for some 30 days. So she's like, you're crazy. Any, everybody knows that if I go to the king uninvited, I'm going to be sentenced to death. The only hope I have is maybe the king decides to show me mercy. But he hasn't asked to see me for a month. So like, I don't even know if he remembers I'm here. You know, I have no idea what's going to happen if I go before the king. And that's where we ended. Yeah, well, yeah, exactly. It's kind of sad, right? Yeah. Okay, so verse 12. Who wants to read? Verses 12 to 14. So this is Mordecai's response to her. And this is probably one of the most, fa- well, it's a very famous passage in the Bible and, and pretty cool. Go for it. So they told Mordecai Esther's words. And Mordecai told them to answer Esther, Do not think in your heart that you will escape in the king's palace any more than all the other Jews. For if you remain completely silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish. Yet who knows whether you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Have you heard that phrase before? For such a time as this? No, anybody? For such a time as this? Yeah, that's, I mean, I think you hear that even outside of the Bible. I'm sure it's been quoted in lots of other places. And it's really like quite a profound few lines uh, from Mordecai here. At first, he says that even if Esther fails, relief and deliverance for the Jews will come from somewhere else. The Hebrew there is quite unusual. The word that's translated relief is revach, and it means space. It's actually, that word is actually only used twice in the whole Bible. Once here in Esther, and once when Jacob is coming, he's returning to Esau. Do you guys remember the story of Jacob and Esau? Jacob steals Esau's blessing. So Esau wants to kill him. And so Jacob flees to Laban, to his uncle Laban, miles and miles away. And he, I don't think he ever sees his parents again. Uh, but eventually God says, it's time for you to go back. And he has now got two wives, Leah and Rebecca, and lots of kids. This is Jacob, so he's going to have the 12... 12 tribes, right? And lots of servants and all sorts of things. And as he comes back to, he's coming back to meet Esau, Esau comes out to meet him with 400 soldiers. And so Jacob's terrified. And so what it says he does is he sends, like, he splits all of his family and kids and belonging up into, like, groups and puts space between them so that if Esau attacks, he won't be able to wipe them all out at once. There'll be time for some of the ones who are further back to escape. And so that's the only other place that this word is used, is that there's that space that, that Jacob puts between his, the groups of his family. But it comes from a word, ravach, that means to breathe freely. And that's the idea behind that word. You're this space and you can breathe. Yeah? I find that kind of cool because back in chapter 3, it said, Haman, the son of Hamadathar, the Agagite, who was the enemy of the Jews. And the word that was translated enemy was tsarar, which means to bind up, to like tie up, and you're essentially tying up tight and suffocating, right? And so that's what Haman was for the Jews. He was going to try to bind them up, tie them up, and suffocate them. But Mordecai says, 
relief will come. They will be able to breathe freely again, which is kind of cool. The other word, deliverance, is this word, hatsalah, and that word only appears this time. This is the only time that word is used in the New Test, in the, in the whole Bible. But it comes from a, a word, natsal, which means to snatch away. And that word is used 213 times in the Old Testament. This is what, so when Reuben realizes that his brothers are going to kill Joseph, yes, it says that he snatched Joseph from their hands. It's the word Natal. It's what God said that he would do for Israel when they were in Egypt. He said that he would snatch them from the hands of the Egyptians. And so that word is usually translated something like rescue or escape. They'll be rescued. And so Mordecai says that whatever happens, whatever Esther decides to do, they are going to be rescued. They are going to escape this and there will be relief for them. They will breathe freely again. How does Mordecai know that? Why is he so sure? Is it because he has faith in Esther that she'll go and plead with the king? No, clearly not, right? His faith is not in Esther. That's, he's saying, in spite of what, whatever you do, this is going to happen. So who is his faith in? God, right? And why is, he, why is Mordecai so sure that God will not allow his people to be murdered by Haman? That, that relief, escape, rescue will come. We'll get to that, but that's a good question. What were you going to say? So he's made promises to them. Why is that significant? God won't not keep his promises. God will always keep his promises. Exactly. So in Jeremiah, so remember, Jeremiah was prophesying before, is, before the kingdom of Judah was conquered by the Babylonians. Yes? Before, David, uh, before Daniel. So you've got the kingdom of Judah. They're not worshipping God. They're not serving God. They're not honoring God in the way that they should. And God is basically saying, you're, you're going, this is going to end badly for you, right? And that's what Jeremiah was sent to tell them. They didn't repent. Babylon conquers the kingdom of Judah. The Babylonian Empire is then conquered by the Persians. And here we are in Persia. So Jeremiah was in the past, right? They all know about what Jeremiah prophesied. Jeremiah said, this is what the Lord says. He who appoints the sun to shine by day, who decrees the moon and stars to shine by night. We've looked at this before. Uh, who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar, the Lord Almighty is His name. Only if these decrees vanish from my sight. Which decrees? Yeah. Day and night. The sun shining in the day, the moon and stars shining at night, the seas with waves that are roaring. Only if these decrees vanish. So only if the sun stops shining, the moon and stars stop shining, and the waves, there's no more waves. Only then will Israel ever cease being a nation before me. This is what the Lord says. Only if the heavens above can be measured. And the foundations of the earth below searched out. Will I reject all the descendants of Israel because of all they have done, declares the Lord. What's he saying? 
I'm going to die. It's impossible things if they but they're impossible. So they're not going to happen, which means? Israel will forever be a nation before God. He will never reject them. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Jeremiah 29, 11. Again, this is a famous verse, but God, and, I, and the principle applies to everybody, but God is actually speaking to His people, to the Jewish people. He says, I know what I have planned for you, says the Lord. I have plans to prosper you, not to harm you. I have plans to give you a future filled with hope. That's a promise. And God always keeps His promises. He can't keep his promises if Haman kills all the Jews. So Mordecai knows. And this is exactly the same today, right? Israel exists as a nation in the land of Israel. There are people all around them who... Hamas, I don't know if you guys are familiar, terrorist group Hamas, terrorist group Hezbollah in Lebanon. They exist for the purpose of destroying Israel. That was why they were created. Iran have spoken many times. Their goal is to wipe Israel off the map. When, when Israel was established as a nation again in 1948, immediately several countries around them tried to wipe them out. And they literally, the reason why there are refugees, Palestinian refugees, is because those nations told them, get out of the way. We are going to march across the land and drive the Jews into the sea. We will kill any that don't move and any that flee. We'll just keep, keep going until they drown in the sea. And then once they're gone, you can come back and have your land back. But it didn't work out that way. God had other plans. Yeah. And so that's why even today, I'm not concerned that any of these people are actually going to succeed in what they're trying to do, because I know that God has made promises to Israel. We've looked at some of that in, when we did the prophetic overview, right? They, there's, a, there's a whole future that God has told us is going to happen in and through the nation of Israel. And so I'm not concerned about those things, because I know God will save them, because otherwise He can't fulfill His word, and I know He's going to fulfill His word, yeah? So anyway, Mordecai is in a very similar situation. He knows that God is going to save his people. Whether or not Esther is faithful, God will be faithful. He will keep his word, fulfill his pro promises, and so the Jewish people will be saved. And so what you see here in the words of Mordecai is like a deep, deep trust in the faithfulness of God. is pretty cool. But that doesn't mean that he just sits back and waits, waits for this to happen, right? He's out in the street mourning, crying out to God, fasting. He's telling Esther, you need to go and speak to the king. Save us. Why? Why not just wait for God to, I don't know, open up the ground under Haman and solve all the problems? What do you think? He has complete faith that God is going to save them. Then but why not just sit and wait for it to happen? But he does. Well, he's, he's, 
I mean, he's telling Esther, you need to do this. Yeah, it's a bit strange, right? But what you see here is that Mordecai, on the one hand, he's completely sure that God is going to save his people, but he also understands that we have a part to play in that. God has his purpose and his will that he is going to accomplish, but we have a part to play in that. And so what you actually find here, I think, is this, again, something we've looked at a few times, is this interplay between God, sovereignty, predestination, all that kind of stuff, and our freedom. Yeah? There is nothing in all of history that is going to surprise God or change His plan, alter His plan. He knows how everything is going to play out, and we've talked about this. I think that's because He kind of already has seen it happen. It's, it, you know, he's outside of time, so He's not seeing things happen in series the way that we do. He can see everything that, everything's the same, right? Past, present, future. He's outside of that. And so he knows what's going to happen because he's seen it happen. And so he will accomplish his will and his purpose and his word. But that doesn't mean that we don't have a, a choice in how God's plan unfolds. Which might seem a bit strange. But the fact is that moment by moment, we are making decisions that affect our lives and affect the lives around us. Yeah? So, like, you can't just do whatever you want and then God will, like, what? Well, he, he would. <laughs> but say God has this, this, this purpose for you. Well, okay. Let's... So... We're making decisions moment by moment, and they affect us and they affect the world around us. But those decisions are not predestined in the sense that we couldn't choose otherwise. Like, we do make those choices. Every day, the choices that you make, you make them in your own freedom, the freedom that God has given you. God, though, is outside of time, so He knows the decisions you're going to make. Even though you get to make them freely, He knows what they're going to be well, what they are, what they will be. And so he can, he has already worked them into his plan and his purposes. Yeah? So, again, like, our choices can't alter God's plan. They can't, al but, yeah, they can't alter God's plan, but they can alter our future. Because our future is still determined, at least partly, by the decisions that we make. We talked about this, like, is your room going to be clean today? In a sense, that's predestined. God knows whether your room is going to be clean today. Not only do you not know, you have a say in it, right? It depends on the decision that you make. Yeah? And so I think that's the point that Mordecai is really making to Esther here. He can see that she is in a unique and unlikely position to be used by God in this situation. Like, what are the chances that this young Jewish orphan girl gets made queen of the, king, the empire, the Persian empire, shortly before a Persian noble decides he's going to wipe out the Jewish people. Pretty unlikely, right? More unlikely, like so unlikely that it's not, it's not a coincidence or an accident. He can see God's hand in putting Esther in this position at this time. And so that's what he says here. You've been put here for a reason, right? Who knows if you've achieved your royal status for such a time as this? 
And so he's saying to Esther, like, you have the opportunity to play a part in what God is going to do. He is going to bring relief and deliverance to his people. You have the opportunity to play a part in that. Don't waste that opportunity because you're scared. And it's worth... You shouldn't shouldn't miss the irony that when Esther was really not in any immediate danger, Mordecai told her to... hide her identity, don't tell anybody you're Jewish. Now when her life is literally at stake, (laughs) yeah, tells her to go tell the king that, hey, you've just passed the law to kill all the Jewish people and I'm Jewish. So, you know, that would be terrifying. And so even though God has put Esther in this place, and she is in a unique position to be used by God, it still requires tremendous courage on her part to actually play her part, right? To put herself out there like that. But, and this is something that's really important for you guys to to know and to understand, is that there is no free lunch. What does that mean? Have you heard that before? You, you pay for it one way or another, right? Or yeah, it, it, there's a price to pay. There's a price to pay one way or another. There's no, no way where you go where it's just free, where there's no price to pay. And that's exactly what, he's, what Mordecai says to Esther here, is that it might seem easier and safer to you just to like keep your head down, stay quiet. Mordecai says, don't be naive. Don't think that you're going to be the one Jew out of all the Jews in Persia who who survived this just because you're in the palace. He's like, you're going to pay a price either way. You go to the king, risk your life. There's potentially a price to pay. But if you stay quiet, you're going to pay a price too. And his argument is that price is going to be worse. That relief and deliverance for the Jews will come from somebody else, somewhere else, you and your household are going to, you're going to be wiped out. That principle applies just as much to us as it does to her. There are no accidents or coincidences in your life. Wherever, wherever you find yourself today, There's a reason you're there. There's a reason you're here. Charles Spurgeon, who was a um, quite famous preacher, said, sorry, you've been wishing for another position where you could do something for Jesus. Do not wish anything of the kind, but serve him where you are. Where are you? Right now, yes, you're in church. Which church? Calvary Auckland. Calvary Auckland, okay. Where else are you in your life? Year 13 of? Which, which school? School, school, What else? That's not quite what I was thinking about, but yes, sure. But more I'm talking about like, in terms of being used by God, playing a part in His plan for well, for everything. Where can you play a, a part? Everywhere. Which is? Like specific areas. Who do you have influence with? Esther's in this position where she's in a palace and she has the ability to influence the king. Maybe. And Mordecai says, 
the fact that you're in the palace is not an accident. You're there for a reason. Where are you? So you're here, right? Amongst these people, right? You're in a youth group. You have the ability to play a part in all of these people's lives. Who else? Where else? Your friend group, right? It's not an accident that you are in the friend group you were in. You're there for a reason. You have the opportunity to, to have an influence, to, to play a part that God has put you there to play, yeah? Just the sports team you find yourself in, your school, your friend group at school, the church that you're in, your youth group, all these sorts of things, right? In Ephesians 2, Paul says, we are God's creative work. And I said last time that the word that's translated creative work is poema. It's the word from which we get our word poetry. You are his work of art, right? His poem. And we've been created in Christ Jesus for good works that God prepared beforehand for us to do. Before when? Before what? What beforehand? Certainly before, before you existed, right? God prepared beforehand good works for you to do. Are you going to do them? Well, where are you going to do them? Where are these good works? Where do you find them? Just go to uh, South Korea or to a different school to do those good works. It's got like scattered them out places. You have to go and find them. That work will be wherever you are. That's what Ecclesiastes 9, it's quite a funny, funny verse, but I quite like it. He says, whatever your hands find to do, do it with all your might. Because there's neither work nor planning nor knowledge nor wisdom in the grave, the place where you will eventually go. <laughs> Classic Ecclesiastes. But basically, you find these good works wherever you are and whatever you happen to be doing. But... What did you say? You might not remember what you said. So God has prepared these good works for you to do. Is it predestined that you will do those good works? Yeah, I don't think so. It is in the sense that God knows what we are and are not going to choose to do. But we have to choose to do the good works that God has given us the opportunity to do. Right? He's laid all these things out around you, all these people around you that you, can, that you can be a blessing to, that you can have an influence with. But we actually have to choose to, to, to play that part, to take those opportunities that God's given us to do. Just like Esther. She's been put in this unique position where she can play this like integral part. And maybe for you, it doesn't feel like the part you're playing is as, as significant as Esther's, but it can be. But she has to actually choose to, to take that opportunity. And it can be scary and hard. It can be scary and hard to speak up or at least not participate when the friends around you are, whatever, saying things, doing things that you know are wrong. Or worse, your government might be telling you to do things that you know are wrong. Certainly, you don't have to look far through history to find people in that kind of situation. And the question is, what do you do in that situation? <laughs> do you keep your head down, stay quiet like Esther was tempted to do? Because it feels like it's easier or safer? Or do you not? Do you choose to stand up and do the right thing? And... And what I would say is that although Esther, and this is again the point that Mordecai was making, although Esther 
felt like being quiet, staying quiet was going to be easier and safer, and it often feels that way when you're in these situations, that it's easier just to go along with the crowd, do whatever, keep your head down. Mordecai's answer to her, and I think that this is true, is that it, there will always be a price to pay. And the question is, well, what, what might be, so say you're in a situation where your friends are going to do something that you know is wrong. And your options are, tell them, I think this is wrong. Or just stay quiet, go along. What's the price to be paid by saying this is wrong? I don't want to say the word, but then, I don't want to say the word, but then call you a coward, but not the polite way of saying it. Yeah. So they, they <laughs> correct. They might, they might call you names. They might actually just stop being your friend altogether. What's the price to be paid by not saying anything? You get drunk. You get drunk. You OD. So you might find yourself doing things that you don't, that you don't want to do, and all the all the consequences that can come from that. Sacrificing yourself. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. You could think of a different situation where maybe you have done something dumb and your parents ask you about it and you have two choices. You can tell them the truth and you'll get in trouble. Did he get drunk? No. You can tell... You can tell them the truth and get in trouble, or you can lie to them. <laughs> what's the price to be, well, what's the price to be paid in telling the truth? Yeah, we'll say it's 2023, but yes, you'll get in, you, you get in trouble, right? And you perhaps know that you're going to get in trouble. For telling the truth. What's the price to be paid in lying? Uh, you suffer in silence. You suffer in silence. Normally the guilt stacks. There's more lying and there's more getting drunk. So it might be that you that, that people find out later and you get in trouble anyway. But it might be, there are plenty of situations, you will be in plenty of situations where you know that your parents will never be able to know what the truth is. So you're not going to be in tr get in trouble necessarily for lying, but there is a price to pay. You suffer in silence. The guilt starts stacking. You... <laughs> You sacrifice your integrity. And even if your parents don't know that you've sacrificed your integrity, you know. And that's going to eat away at you. It's going to make you a smaller, weaker person. So there is a price to pay. Yeah. Like by not telling them something, you could also like prevent them from hurting themselves, like preventing your friends from doing the stupid thing as well as you doing. Yeah. Yeah. So the point is that whatever choice you make, there is going to be a price to pay. And the encouragement is choose to pay the right price. Jesus said, 
Don't be afraid of those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Instead, fear the one who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Be scared of the right things. Be more scared of what lying will do to you as a person than, than whatever punishment you might get for telling the truth. Be more scared of what we talked about, failing to speak up, failing to, to, to do the right thing in your group of friends than they might make fun of me, right? Choose to pay the right price. Now, if you've trusted in Jesus, put your life and your salvation in his hands. You're not going to burn in hell. That's, but, but there can still be serious consequences for failing to do the good works that God has given us the opportunity to do. That might be in our life today, but it'll certainly be there will certainly be consequences in our eternal future. I was thinking that the consequences can be your friends. Absolutely. So there's this verse in Revelation. This is in the new heavens and the new earth. And it says that God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And the question is, why are there tears in the new heavens and the new earth for God to wipe away? I don't even think we'll be upset about what's been lost in the sense of like the old, broken, painful world has been replaced by the new heavens and new earth. Yeah, I, I mean, I don't know. It could be many things, but at least one possibility that I've heard is that these are tears of regret, of realizing all the opportunities we've missed and what the consequences of those have been which could very well be people, you know? So, don't waste the time and the opportunities that God has given you. Look for the good works that He has prepared beforehand for you to do all around you, because that's where they are. If necessary, be brave. And most importantly, choose to pay the right price. The price for telling the truth, even if you get in trouble. The price for doing the right thing, even when it's hard. Because, well, know that the price of the alternative is worse. It's higher, yeah. So, that was, that was Mordecai. Don't think that just because you're in the king's palace, you're going to escape. If you keep silent, there's a price to pay. You and your, you and your household are going to perish. And who knows, maybe you're here for exactly this reason. So what does Esther say? Verses 15 and 17. 15 and 17. Do you want to read? If you want. You don't have to. If you'd like to. Yes, basic, just the rest of the chapter. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, Go gather all the Jews who are present in Shushan and fast for me. Neither eat nor drink for three days, night or day. My maids and I will f fast likewise. And so I will go to the king, which is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. So Mordecai went his way and did according to all that Esther commanded him. <laughs> it's one of the most significant statements, I think, in the book of Esther. So what's happening? It's just like, fine, I'll do it. Everybody pray for me. What is Esther's choosing to pay the right price. Yeah? yeah? If the cost of doing what God has asked her to, what God has given her the opportunity to do is her own death. She's like, fine, so be it. I'll do that. Trusting 
that the alternative of staying silent is worse. And so she's choosing to surrender herself completely, to obey God whatever the cost, and trust God with her life. Now, here's what's kind of strange about that. Having chosen to risk her life and go before the king, do you think she's now feeling more or less worried? Has her anxiety gone up or down? You reckon up, why? Right, so she's risking her life. She's going to, going to be more anxious. What do you think? I think less. Why? Yeah, it's a funny thing. In my experience, and obviously, I don't know, I wasn't there. Can't ask Esther. (laughs) But from my experience, when you get to this place of, if I perish, I perish, where you basically come to the end of yourself, you give up and completely give the situation over to God, whatever you want. If that's dead, then I die. Fine, whatever. In my experience, when you're in that place, when you reach that place, where you surrender yourself and your future completely to God, that is where you experience, I don't think I have that. The, the, well, we do, we go there now. But, and, and rarely anywhere else other than when you are in that place where you surrender yourself and the situation completely to God. That is where you experience that peace of God that passes all understanding. Literally, that makes no sense. Beyond understanding, it doesn't make sense. Why do you think that is? Yeah, I think that's exactly right. Because like, what's the alternative? If God isn't in control of the situation, who is? You. <laughs> but are you? Is Esther in control of the situation? She's trying, but she's not in control, right? You, in any situation where you're feeling worried, are you in control of that situation? Which is why you're worried, exactly. The fact that you're worried is a pretty good indication, usually, that you're not really in control of it. Obviously, if you have complete control, then there's nothing to worry about. But you almost never have complete control in any situation that's like vaguely important. And so, you worry. What is the biblical antidote to worry? Philippians 4, do not worry about anything. Instead, in every situation, through prayer and petition with thanksgiving, tell your requests to God and the peace of God that surpasses all understanding, that makes absolutely no sense in the situation, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. So how do you experience the peace of God? Submit all things to God in prayer. Okay. In your experience, is that true? Do you pray about it and then all the worries wash away? Why? Yeah, so I guess I would ask, 
Are there times that you pray about a situation and you're still worried? Are there times when you pray about a situation and all the worry washes away? Yeah, so I would say that, well, the question then is, yeah, what's the difference? Why sometimes when you pray, is it like all good, the worries are gone, and other times you pray and the worries are still there? And I think that that is mostly depends on why you're praying, what you're trying to achieve in your prayer. And for the most part, when we start out praying about a situation, our first attempts is basically, please, God, give me what I want. Please, 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 please give me what I want. That kind of prayer does not result in peace. Why not? And why does that not fix the problem? Why does that not resolve the worry? Oh, who knows? Maybe he's got a good plan. Why, if we're asking God to give us what we want, are you still going to be worried about it? Therefore, you might not get what you want. He might say no, right? If you're just asking me, give me what I want, he might say no, and you want what you want, which means you're still worried because what if God says no? Before you were worried because maybe it won't ha- I haven't got enough control to make it happen, you still don't have enough control to make it happen. You're just worrying for a different reason. So then what kind of prayer does result in peace? Yeah, it's when you get to that situation, when you get to that point where, and usually it's after a whole lot of worry and you're so sick of worrying that you're basically like, fine, I don't care. Whatever you want, right? It's when you get to that place where you actually submit the situation to God. That you give up what you want and you genuinely say to God, I don't care. I want what you want. That's the point where the worry washes away. And that, I think, is what Esther's saying here when she says, if I perish, I perish. She's got to that point where she's not trying to be in control of the situation anymore. Oi. And so what you find is that peace doesn't come in knowing what the outcome will be or knowing that the outcome will be what you want it to be. Peace is found in trusting the one who is responsible for the outcome. Knowing that God loves you, that he has your best interests in mind and therefore being content with whatever he wants in that situation. Now, we, I mentioned this back in Ruth, but there's this quote that I really like. I heard many years ago. It says, if you pray, why worry? If you worry, why pray? <laughs> the second half's the fun part. So, in theory, if you've prayed about a situation, you've given it into God's hands, Right? You've asked for His will to be done and you're trusting Him with the outcome in that situation. And so now it's not actually your problem anymore. You've given it to God. It's His responsibility. And if that's the case, if that's what you've done, well then why are you worrying about it? It's not your problem. Leave it to God. On the other hand, if you are determined to keep worrying about this thing, then the reality is you haven't actually given it to God right? You're still trying to maintain some control over it. And if that's the case, if you're not willing to give it to God, well, then why bother praying about it? And so when, you, when we pray, when you pray, we can't just ask God to give us what we want. You can, 
but it won't be very successful because if it's not what God wants, there's no guarantee that He's going to give it to you. And so you don't have any peace. But even more than that, if it's not what God wants for you in your situation, you shouldn't want it to happen, right? It shouldn't even be what you want. Unless, of course, you know more than God. But yes, obviously, foolish, foolish thing to think, but that is often how we think, even if we don't realize that's what we're thinking. So rather, like Jesus, we should be praying, Our Father, who is in heaven, your name is holy. Your kingdom come, your will be done. That's what we should be praying. God, your will be done. And we don't just say that, we have to actually want it. I want your will to be done in this situation, whatever that is. And that, that there, when you reach that place, that is when you experience the peace of God that passes all understanding. When it's no longer your problem. Yeah. I was thinking actually this morning that, uh, how much have we got? No, we're almost there, okay. There's a, um, what was I thinking? As you grow older, there is a nostalgia that one has, this like feeling of what it was like to be a kid. It is a little bit. Where you don't have to worry about stuff. Like, you have parents to do that for you. And when you have a really difficult situation or a difficult decision to make, there's this real peace in basically being able to go to your dad and be like, what do I do here? You make the decision for me, right? And as you grow, grow older, that's less, that's less available to you. You have to, you have to, you're responsible for your own decisions. I think that's a model, really, of what we're talking about here as well with God the Father, right? That's that peace. It's the same peace that a child feels when you basically give this situation to your parents and be like, you deal with it, right? You're the adults. You know what's best. You make this decision. I'm just going to forget about it. There is a lot of... I'm, there is a lot to look forward to. It is a lot more fun being an adult than a, than a child. I'll tell you that. But one of the things you don't have is that that. However, we do have that. That's what we have in God. We get to bring those things to Him and basically say, look, I don't know what to do here. Here is your problem now. And relax. And that's where you're going to experience that peace. Okay, so that's where Esther finds herself. She says, if I perish... I perish. Make sure I didn't miss that. Esther's chosen to give her life to God in much the same way that Jesus tells us to. Uh, hold up. Did I miss that? Yeah, okay. I think I've, I haven't got this verse in here, but Jesus, where he says, if anyone wants to become my follower, he must. Not quite. If anybody wants to, if anyone wants to become my follower, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. You're following. If you want to be my follower, you got to follow me. Okay. And then he says, "Forever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life because of me will find it." That's pretty much Mordecai's warning to Esther, right? You try to save your life, you are going to lose it. But if you choose to lose it, you give it over to God, you entrust Him with it, you will find it. And I think that that is 100% in life, uh, correct in life. And I strongly suspect that for Esther, having come to that place where she has completely trusted God with her life, if I perish, I perish, that she will have experienced more peace and life 
than she ever could have found hiding in the palace while all of her people are being murdered. And so in choosing to lose her life, I think she found it. And in more than one way, because up until now, Esther's story has been remarkable, but not historic. If Esther had chosen to save herself, to keep quiet, hide in the palace, keep her head down, she and her story, I suspect, we wouldn't be reading about it now, right? It'd be lost to history. Nobody would be naming their kids Esther. But she didn't. With these words, if I perish, I perish. Esther immortalized her life, which is kind of cool. This decision, if I perish, I perish, is arguably the defining moment in Esther's life, and it's also a turning point in the story. Up until now, it has been Mordecai telling Esther what she should do. Remember back in chapter 2, Esther continued to do whatever Mordecai said, just as she had done when he was raising her. But this here is the first time that Esther takes the initiative, and she starts telling Mordecai what to do. What does he tell him to do? What does she tell him to do? Get all the Jews together in the entire city of Susa and fast on my behalf. Don't eat anything or drink anything for three days and nights, and her and her servants are going to do the same. Why? How will starving themselves for three days help this situation? Yeah, so we talked about this back in verse 3, right? Where we asked, like, why are the Jewish people fasting and who are they fasting for? And at the time, back in, chap- back in verse 3, it was conceivable that they were fasting for the sake of the people around them to kind of gather kind of how people go in hunger strikes, right? To basically um, to garner sympathy from people. So it's possible back there. But here, it makes absolutely no sense for this fasting to be anything other than fasting and prayer, right? Um, Of course, if that's the case, if this is fasting and prayer, why not say so? Where's the prayer? And I think that that, as we said right back at the start, is because like, like so often in the way that we experience God in our lives, the prayer is hidden. It's clearly there. This is clearly what they're doing, fasting and praying, but not so that you can see it. It doesn't say so. Anyway. So Mordecai set out to do everything that Esther had instructed him. That's the end of chapter 4. We're, we're almost halfway, I think. Pretty much halfway. There are 10, but the last chapter is like super, super short. So it's really 9 and a bit. Okay, let's pray. Lord God, I thank you so, so much for this, uh, this amazing passage, Lord, for the privilege it is to read your word and to, to, learn, to learn from you through it. And I ask that you, would, that you would keep these things fresh in our minds, Lord, that you would teach us to, uh, to surrender ourselves to you, Lord, to find that peace that comes in no longer holding on and trying to control the situations that cause us to worry, but just surrendering them to you and genuinely wanting your will in our lives, whatever that looks like. I uh, pray also that you would help us to pay the right, choose to pay the right prices, Lord, to choose to do the right thing and to take the opportunities that you've given us. To choose to do, yeah, to choose to take those opportunities, Lord, and to do the good works that you've prepared beforehand for us to do 
even when it's hard, even when it's scary, knowing that, um, yeah, that whatever that price is, Lord, that's the price that's better for us to pay, that in the long run, uh, that's where the peace and the joy that passes all understanding is found. Um, please bless these, these guys as they go out this week, as they go back into school. And um, Lord, I ask that you would bring, to, bring, bring before their eyes, that you would reveal to them in, in the places where they are and the people that they're with, the opportunities that you've given them to, to do good works, to have an influence, a positive influence, and to play a part in the plan that you have for each of us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.